Okay. We are doing now the first parsha of the fifth and final book of Chumash, Parshas Dvarim, of Sefer Dvarim. We are in chapter 1. We're up to verse 22. And in Dvarim, Dvarim is called Mishnah Torah because it takes place over 39 days, 37 days, I'm sorry, from the first day of Shvat, throughout the entire month of Shvat, and then seven days into Adar. So for those 37 days, we are recounting what transpired over the past 40 years, plus highlighting several of the commandments that were already taught that are being reinforced. So in today's section, we are recounting something that we learned, so to speak, when it happened, the tremendous transgression of the spies, which is described throughout an entire parsha, basically, in the Midrash Parsha Shlach. And now in a few verses, we're hearing a recounting of it, bringing in some details we didn't know from then, of course. So, it begins. You approached me, all of you, and said, let us send men ahead of us and let them spy out the land and bring word back to us the roads on which we should ascend and the cities to which we should come. So on the words, you approached me, all of you, all of you is uh, seemingly superfluous, extra. Rashi says they came in this rabble with a very disorganized, disrespectful jumble of people, which we could contrast to later when we're discussing, we're reviewing what happened by the giving of the Torah, when God started speaking, this very much overwhelmed the people, and they came to Moses and asked him to talk instead, but they came in a very orderly, respectful fashion, the young, and ahead of them the old, and ahead of them the heads of the tribes. But here, because they were in such a state of panic, the young and the old and the heads, they're all pushing each other because they're so to speak, this confusion is showing their, their panic of like this lack of faith of the Jewish people. Bring back word to us. We want to know what language they speak. Which their road we should go, because there's no road that doesn't have some crookedness in it. So which is the best road for us? The cities we should come to, which should be the first we should conquer? In other words, we're looking, what they said to Moses is, we're looking for strategies. And there's many different commentators on what really was in their head, and why did Moses agree? And there's many versions on what was in their head and many versions on why Moses agreed. But in a simple sense, maybe, they were looking possibly just for a strategy, which of course was completely unnecessary, because at that moment they were supposed to walk in and the nations would have just fled and there wouldn't have been any need for strategies and any needs for war. On the other hand, we're supposed to go and follow nature as much as we can, so maybe it's appropriate for us to create strategies, though we won't need them. But of course, it seems, at least for definitely a part of the Jews, their desire was not to strategize, but rather to find an excuse to not go into the land. So the verse continues, the matter was good in my eyes, so I took from you 12 men, one man for each tribe. So Rashi says in my eyes, but not in God's eyes. Now what's going on here? Moses here is giving rebuke to the Jews. That's the purpose of the section. So the matter was good in my eyes. sounds very positive. It doesn't sound like he's rebuking them. But what he's saying is, I acted as if it was a great idea, like a buyer-seller when I'm trying to sell you my donkey, 
And you said, can I take it for a test run? I say, sure. Can I take it to the hills, to the mountains, to the valley? Sure, sure, sure. I'm like, okay, I can see you're very confident. Must be a great donkey. I'm not going to even bother here. Let me just buy it from you. So Moses said, I tried to do the same thing. You want to check out the land? Sure. You want to have five traverse the whole land? Sure. Thinking then you say, okay, well, obviously Moses is so confident in the greatness of the land. We don't need to bother. But unfortunately, you kept going with it. And I took from you, which Marsh explains means I took from the best of you, meaning the spies. There was ever saying here 12, one per tribe. Moses understood the dangers in this mission. Ever you want to understand that Moses understood it, however you want to understand what the Jews were holding, Moses definitely knew this was definitely spiritually very dangerous, very treacherous, and like not a good idea, but the better of two evils. For me to refuse to send would be worse than for me to send, so I'm going to send and try to pick the best men who won't mess up. Of course, 10 out of 12 did mess up. But they all started out very righteous, but then they sort of lost it because instead of being Moses' emissaries and nullified to Moses and following his vision, they decided they were spies, meaning they were independent people now that were independently going to take stock of the land and then form a judgment can, should the Jews conquer it, as versus what they were told to do by Moses, which was not to spy, but to scout out the land to bring back reports so we know the best way to conquer it, not should we conquer it. They're not spies making a judgment, but that's what they became. So once they stopped being nullified to Moses and they just became their own independent entities, these very good holy people, 10 out of the 12 of them, lost it completely and brought the Jews down a very, very, very bad path that kept us in the desert for another 39 years. Twelve men, one for each tribe, were emphasizing the fact that it was 12 and one for each tribe, shows us one tribe did not participate, and we did not take any spies from the tribe of Levi. So the tribe of Levi in general were told to not sin with the sin of the spies, just as they did not sin with the sin of the golden calf. And of course we're told the women did not sin with the spies or sin with the sin of the golden calf. They turned and ascended the mountain and came to the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. Now, Eshkol means literally a cluster, as in a cluster of grapes. Zerashi so says this valley was called the Valley of Eshkol because of what was going to happen there, meaning, as you've probably all seen the famous picture of eight spies carrying one cluster of grapes. Literally, eight men were carrying one cluster of grapes. So huge and tremendous were the grapes there. So they cut that cluster from this valley. So because of that famous cluster, it became the valley of the cluster of the grapes. And the spies did this because they wanted to basically imply to the Jews, it sounds like, oh, they're doing a good thing, showing how wonderful the fruits are. And of course, every lie has to have a bit of truth. And the fruits were amazing. But their point to the Jews was, look, you see how crazy huge is eight men to carry one cluster of grapes? Can you imagine how scarily huge the people are in this land, in this crazy land, in this huge land? Very bountiful if you want to be a giant. So, and it did its job. Instead of them being like, wow, the most amazing grapes, they're like, wow, this is a very scary place. But looking at it positively, the Bob Jareva says 40 years later, when they were going to enter the land, they did have the positive energy, you know, 40 years later, of like, oh, wow, remember those grapes? This truly is an amazing land we're going to. And they spied it out. So Rashi says this teaches us that they walked 
in the land along its four sides, the length and the breadth, meaning completely traversing it. Some commentators of Rashi explain Rashi's words to mean they went in four rows, meaning the spies traversed the land in this crisscross pattern to thoroughly, thoroughly traverse it. They took in their hands from the food of the land and brought it down to us. They brought back word to us and said, good is the land that God, our God, gives us. So they brought it down to us because Israel is considered the highest of all the land. So whenever you leave Israel, you're going down. They said it's a good land. Well, who said it's a good land? I thought the spies in the end were speaking very negatively. Who said this is the two spies that stayed faithful despite all the enormous pull on them to crumble. But Joshua and Kalev, they stayed faithful to God, faithful to their mission, faithful to Moses, and they tried very hard to convince the Jews that it's an amazing land and don't listen to these other ten people and let go. And, and they almost succeeded, but then the spies pulled the Jews back down the pit of evil. But you do not wish to ascend, and you rebelled against the word of God, your God. You rebelled, Rashi says, you're rejecting you were defiant against his word, as we're going to see. The next verse says, and you slandered in your tents and said, because of God's hatred for us, you take us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us to the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. So you slandered, you spoke maliciously. You're spreading gossip. You're in your tent that whole night, which was, of course, living with the times. That was the first Tishabav, the first ninth of Av, which, of course, is earmarked for sorrow for the Jewish people. So this was the first event of the ninth of of historically when the Jewish people, or the bulk of the men of the Jews, spent that night of Tishabav complaining and bewailing the fact that God took them out of Egypt to bring them into Israel. And so listen, these words we don't have when it's in, in Bamidbar, but here when Moses is recounting it, he brings in this horrible words of the Jewish people because of God's hatred for us. Now, this is such an absurd claim. God took you out of Egypt because he hated you? They thought everything God did for them. How could they say something so crazy? The Rashi says, he loved you. But you, at that moment, of course, not eternally, hated him. And what's in your heart about your friend is what you think is in his heart about you. So at this moment, you, Hashem, God forbid, are feeling hateful toward God, you're assuming that's what he feels toward you. And that's how you could say something as absurd as the exodus, which was the heights of God's love for us, you've now decided is God's hatred of you. Now, how could they say taking out of Egypt is an expression of hatred? So they compared it, and they said, you know what it's like? I mean, because here they had to convince themselves that this enormous exodus this enormous display of God's love is actually hatred. <laughs> How did they justify that in their crazy heads at the moment, right? So what they said is, you know what it's like? It's like if the king has two sons, and he has two fields. It must be a pretty small king to have two fields. One is easily irrigated, and one depends on rain. So the one who he hates, he gives a field that depends on rain, and the one who he loves, he gives a field of irrigation. Egypt has the Nile that irrigates it. And Canaan, Israel, depends on rain. So what was their logic? Why is depending on rain bad? Because if the field depends on rain, it's only productive when it's rains. An irrigated field is always productive. 
of course, this very fact actually shows God's love of the Jews, as, as we bring in other verses in the Chumash, that he took you from Egypt, where you have to go and irrigate the land. You have to work hard to bring water to the land because it doesn't rain in Egypt. And he took you to the land of Israel where it rains and you could lie peacefully in your beds and sleep and God waters the land for you. So it's ironic and sad that the very fact which actually is expressive of God's love, they're now twisting to say it's expressive of God's hatred. And unfortunately, sometimes people do this and, and sometimes you see exactly, you know, as the expression goes, biting the hand that feeds you, exactly things people do to help someone sometimes gets twisted as the, the point of how horrible that person is. They went on to say, to where shall we ascend? Our brothers have melted our hearts, saying, a people greater and taller than we, cities great and fortified to the heaven, and even children of the giants have we seen there. So obviously, when we say cities great and fortified to the heavens, this is an exaggerated expression. They didn't mean literally the heavens. But the spies are saying how enormously strong are the cities and enormously strong are the people. So it's a very scary land. Then I said to you, do not break down and do not fear them. Do not break down means, as the uncles is saying, to, to be broken. As we see, you know, the brokenness of the valleys. God, your God who goes before you, he shall do battle for you. Like everything he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. He shall do battle for you, for you meaning on your behalf he's going to fight. Don't worry. And in, the wild, and in the wilderness, as you have seen, that God, your God, carried you. As a man carries his son on the entire way that you traveled until you arrived at this place. So in the wilderness, like everything he did for you in Egypt, he also did for you in the wilderness. He carried you, meaning is that we have the angels of God going in front of the camp, going behind the camp, which are actually said we can compare this to someone who's on the road with his son. And the bandits come to take the son captive. But the father takes his son from in front of him and places him behind him, meaning he's now standing in front of his son to protect him. Then a wolf comes behind the father. So he takes his son and he puts him in front of him, and he's behind him to protect him from the wolf. And then we have the bandits on one side and the wolves on the other. And the father takes his son on his arms and he fights both of them. And this is what God did. And, of course, we have this happening specifically, of course, before and during the splitting of the sea where the angels and the clouds of glory and the clouds expressing God's presence went between the Jews and the Egyptians to protect and defend the Jews from the Egyptians. So God is carrying you the entire way, which shows his enormous love for you. Yet in this manner, you do not believe in God, your God. So what didn't they believe in God, their God? So Rashi said, this matter means that he promised you to bring you to the land. In this, you didn't believe in God. Meaning, what we might think the verse means, is the fact that God carried you in the desert, you don't believe that he did that. But that's too illogical to say, because they experienced it. Meaning, they experienced being carried. They experienced the clouds of glory going between them and the Egyptians. They experienced for the year that they were in the desert thus far how God was taking such enormous care for them. So it could be that they didn't believe that God was carrying them. They experienced it. So what do they believe here? This matter is the promise of bringing to the land. This is where they said, well, 
He had the power against, you know, Pharaoh and Egypt. But the 31 kings of Canaan, no, that God can't possibly handle. Who goes before you on the way to seek out for you a place for you to encamp with fire by night to show you the road that you should travel with a cloud by day? So Rashi takes this word, they're awesome, and explain it that it's as if it was written, lahar osam, to cause you to see. These clouds of fire are to cause you to see. God heard the sound of your words and he was incensed and he swore, saying, if even a man of these people, this evil generation, shall see the good land that I swore to give to your forefathers, except for Kaleb, the son of Yifuna, he shall see it. Remember, Kaleb was a spy that stayed loyal. And to him shall give the land upon which he trod and to his children because he followed God wholeheartedly. The land which he trod, Rashi explains, is Hebron because we had two spies that stayed loyal, Joshua and Kaleb. Now Joshua was a disciple of Moses and Moses prayed for him special prayers which kept him strong. He had many temptations to break down for many various reasons, but he stayed strong. Kalev did not have these extra prayers. Kalev did something even stronger than having Moses pray for him. Kalev prayed for himself. And Kalev, seeing the enormous, you know, 40 days there with these spies and day after day there talking to them and talking to them and talking to them and trying to convince them, obviously the spies believed what they were doing was right in the skies started out all as very righteous, wise men, so obviously they had very great persuasions why what they were doing was right. So for 40 days, you're being harangued by all these people. Kale felt, I'm going to succumb. I'm going to give in. I'm going to think that this is the right thing too. So he specifically left the group and traveled on his own to Hebron because that's where the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were buried to pray there to have the strength not to succumb. So God, and, and this gave him the power. When you reach out on your own to try to connect to God this way that's honestly even more powerful than, than having someone pray for you, having Moses pray for you. Your own efforts are so strong, are so valued by God. So God is saying because he traveled to Hebron to pray, to not succumb, he is going to get the land of Hebron and that will be a gift for him and his descendants. With me as well, God became angry because of you saying, you too shall not come there. So Rashi explains that sort of his hanafas, he became full with anger. Joshua, son of Nun, who was the other spy, of course, that stayed loyal, who stands before you, he shall come there, strengthen him, for he shall call, cause Israel to inherit it. And that is the Chumash of today.